This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Not everything metal was created equal. What an ugly thing to say. The Metal Sucks Podcast. Chickity Chuck and Godless attempt to bring order to chaos or just make stupid jokes about dumb people. Stupid. A person below normal intelligence. This is the Metal Sucks Podcast. Greetings and salutations, my fine metal yes. friends. Welcome to another edition of the Metal Sucks Podcast. How the hell are you doing? I'm Chuck. I'm Godless. And this is your weekly examination of all oh, things yeah. metal, the Metal Sucks Podcast. Make sure you are subscribed all over the place, whether it's Stitcher, Google. Uh, you can get us on iTunes, of course. You search Metal Sucks Podcast and you will find it. Click subscribe and that way it's right on your device. Every single Monday when we post this thing at MetalSucks.net, it comes right to you. Easy peasy, man. But if you go to MetalSucks.net, click on Podcast. If you click on the tab at the top, all of our podcasts listed right there. You can check them all out. We've had some damn good ones lately. So I think you uh, might want to go and listen, re-listen to the ones that are your favorites and, and tell your friends about it and, you know, leave us a couple of stars and tell us that we suck. You know, we, we appreciate all that. So yeah. We got some great comments on last week's episode, which was our Cliff Burton tribute. More than we've gotten for any episode i was pretty happy about that one man listen to ray and ray and if uh, you didn't know they started a cliff burton family page on facebook let's get a lot of videos of ray showing off of uh different stuff of cliffs which is kind of cool they did it in commemoration of the 30th and you know like he was showing his hall of fame trophy and his the the base like the first base and a lot a lot of a lot of cool stuff that they've had at the uh, cliff burton family page at uh, facebook.com so if you want to look that up check that out i think you I think you'd find it pretty cool if you want to look us up you can find me on twitter at bearded ape and at godless speaks godless speaks on facebook and spotify uh you can find me on spotify at no control radio and you can find us on instagram at chuck and godless boy there's a lot of these things uh, as well as chuck and godless.com uh, if you want to go there that will be our patreon page and you can support us. That would be awesome. Thanks to everybody who's already been a supporter. We appreciate it. I, I, I'm a special call out for anybody who like has not done it before. They can't sustain. And Patreon, you know, is that sustaining thing? Yeah. Just, 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 just do it once, and then you can go away. It's cool. I, I, I won't. I, it won't break my heart or nothing. But it breaks God my heart. It. I don't like to see. No. I don't like to see minus signs. I like to see it, positive it, growth. Man. I, I know, but just it's what I'm saying. Just everybody get in there. And just do it one time, and I and if it feels good, stick around. If it, if if it doesn't feel good, then you know it's cool. You know it's all good. And this but episode, it'd be good if you just do one thing. Yeah, maybe a little bit of money. Little, come on, come yeah, you on. Know, for the price of a cup of coffee or feeding a starving child in Africa, you too can support your favorite podcast. Yeah, it'll be great. Yeah, we appreciate it. We really, really do. And, you, and what do you get for it? you get the podcast early? Definitely, uh, usually a couple days uh, early. Uh, I like to post it on Friday, Saturday ish, so you get to, you get to see you get to hear it in advance. Then we get extra content, like whenever we do a segment that doesn't make it to the podcast, or if we mm-hmm. get outtakes from interviews and stuff. Uh, like I think we're probably got a few that are coming up. We get some other special things that we're going to be doing for Patreon uh, subscribers. So check it out. I think you uh, will like it. ChuckandGodless.com if you want to dig it up over there. This episode we've got uh, Monty Pittman. Uh, you may know him uh, from Madonna. Wait, may, you probably don't know him from that. Yeah, you, you, you might, you might, but he, he is a stellar guitarist and solo artist now, of course, doing metal. 
and dude he's got a brand new record out and and that's that yeah we got a chance to talk to him on his way back from vegas shooting a video and uh, yeah we we grill him about a bunch of different stuff he, he hasn't been grilled like that i don't think definitely uh, not by another podcast uh, no no i don't think so also uh we talked to dx ferris because uh coming up this week is the 30th anniversary or birthday if you will of rain and blood uh, from a, a little band, I think called Slayer. I think is that. Yeah, that's who who did it. So we wanted to talk to the 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 mastermind, the guy who's got his finger on the pulse of the band Slayer, DX Ferris. He's written two books. the The second one I've read is absolutely excellent, absolutely crucial. The Jeff and Dave years, uh, crucial reading for anybody who's a, a Slayer fan. I learned so much about everything makes sense. You know, you have all those people arguing on the message boards about why did they do this or why did they do that? DX knows and he's shared the information. You can go get it. And he's going to share a few things with us because he's got a post coming up later on Metal Sucks this week uh, that uh, talks about some misconceptions about the Rain and Blood record. We're going to talk about a few of those in this episode because some of them actually I had these misconceptions. Actually, I I thought I I didn't put it together and I was like, oh, really? Wow. So, yeah, we're going to talk about some of those later in this episode. So that's coming up in a bit we'll hear some music from slayer also hear something off of monty's new record as well and uh and yeah we got a pretty good episode coming up for you but dude <laughs> i was uh i spent my monday evening i was taking pictures of my kid playing band uh i instagrammed it you know because I, it was the first time i'd seen a marching band in years like live <clears throat> it, it, i couldn't believe it because I, I forgot how good it was to like see marching bands. Because I don't go to football games on Friday nights. Oh, I, I got my show. Dude, you did not let your kid get into marching band, did you? Not yet. She's uh, only in middle school, so she's yeah, she's still don't, young. Don't do it, man. I've told my son since he was little. I'd rather he get addicted to crack cocaine than join the goddamn marching. What's band. What's wrong with the marching I mean, band? Oh, no, it's terrible. you got to wake up at like 5 in the morning. They start doing their drum drills right at 6 a.m. I know. I used to live close to the high school around the corner. Uh, All of a sudden, three days a week, it'd be pop, 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 pop. Oh, God damn, it's 6 o'clock. Can't they like let this... And then you got to travel all over the goddamn state or beyond. Well, see, and, and this is part of oh. what this is part of what the wife and I are actually talking about because you know my daughter is twelve; she's going on thirteen, and we've been discussing whether or not we want her to drive uh, early. Like, like my my wife came to me and was like, "I'm going to teach our daughter how to drive," and I was like, "Wait a minute, what the fuck are you talking about? You're going to teach?" Yeah. Like, she's twelve years old, and she's like, "No, no, you know, looking ahead, going, okay, well." You know, I want her to drive at 15 when she gets a, able to get a permit, learner's permit and all that stuff. And you know, if she's going to be in the fucking marching band or extracurricular activities, I want her to be able to drive her ass there at six in the morning on Saturday. Not dad, not mom. You know, you get to do this yourself. And that's kind of part of the impetus behind like teaching her how to drive this early. And uh, the last thing I want, uh, the last thing I want is my wife to teach my daughter how to drive because she is. Oh, force the kid to march to marching band. That's what you do. (laughs) Try to turn her off to it. Yeah. If you're going to be an asshole and join the the marching band, I'm going to be an asshole and make you march to the goddamn marching band. That's well, it doesn't matter what dude, whether you're in the choir, whether you're in the ROTC, the band or whatever, there's extracurricular activities like all 
the fucking time. It's just how it is when you get into high school these days. So you have to be there after. You got to be there early. You got to be there on the weekends. It's all just part of it. Uh, so I worked at the radio station, man. I could just sit there. It was great. You yeah, know, but you had to go the there. Yeah, but it was in the state. It was in the school. So it was like I could just get on the phone with the publicist. But how do you get them. home? Well, eventually somebody would pick me up or I would, you know, catch a ride for, a, you know, from a buddy or See, something. This is what I'm saying. This is why I want my child to be independent here, man. But I think what I think is she's got this idea that she wants a she wants a Volkswagen bug and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, OK, well, actually, that's really cool because I can get her to drive a stick shift. If I can get her to drive a oh. stick shift. Oh. Mom can't teach her how to drive because mom what doesn't know she- how to drive a stick shift. What has she done to you that you would teach that useless skill? Dude, because it's so freaking awesome. To, because, well, first off, like I said, mom doesn't know how to drive a stick. So I can teach her how to drive. That's the whole point is to be oh. to me be in control of this because I know how you, to drive. You, Mr. Getting Whataburger on his way home from work all the time drives a stick that's the plan oh no you get an automatic man. what does Whataburger have to do with it man what the, I mean, well, because you can't drive and eat at the same time if you're driving a stick well but yeah i don't drive and eat man i i, I stop i sit i relax i i decompress after my uh my late night you know forays into whatever adventures that i may have man you gotta sit and chill decompress since 1992 <laughs> well that's probably true uh, but but I mean, is it too young to teach you start teaching your kid how to drive like at twelve, thirteen? I mean, I think it, I I had this feeling it was, but I don't want my wife to like usurp me. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't want her to get in there and like teach bad habits because my my wife already has these bad habits. Like you know, she's one of those people that will wait till the last second to hit the brakes to when she's coming up to a red light or something. You know, like Aww. you where you jerk forward all the time, like. All the time. She yeah. like taps the brakes constantly. Then she bitches at me for being a tailgater and all this other stuff. But like she can't like the basics you can't take a turn very fast. You know, doesn't use her turn signals correctly. You know, like all the, that kind of shit. You know, that stuff bugs the shit out of me. And I'm like, I need to be the well, one. Why don't you get like a group class and just have the two of them take lessons together? Well, you know, the, the wife won't admit that she can't drive, you know. <laughs> I I just give her shit about it, you know. She won't. She thinks she's fine. She thinks I'm the fucking crazy one, you know. She doesn't want me teaching her how to drive because I drive like a fucking bat out of hell. But I drive like somebody who drives in a pl- town that's got traffic, you know. Yeah. Like you got you got to be aggressive, you know. You teach the kid how to drive at twelve. I think that you know there's advantages and then there are disadvantages. The advantages, the kid will be pretty good driving them when they're sixteen. The disadvantages that uh, they're going to take the car and they're going to wreck it a couple times before they're 16. Well, the advantage is that they're going to have be able to drive pretty well when they're 16. The disadvantage is that they're going to be the one who their friends ask to drive. So they're never going to get the joy of uh, drinking underage or partying underage, nor will they uh, necessarily. uh, And they'll also be the one who collects all of the speeding tickets. Uh, while their friends are, you know, in the passenger seat. Those are all true things. But, you know, if that if that works you into being a safe, designated driver, so be it. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being that guy. That's, that's who I am these days. I think my wife started driving when she was 13 or 14. I think she crashed two cars. I think most people should crash one to get it going. That's just, that's just par for the Hang course. Hang on, let me see. You know? I've crashed one. I totaled one. Totaled two. Totaled three uh crashed four 
<laughs> Dude, uh, your your uh, auto insurance must uh, well, be crazy. No, uh, but that was that that was all before like twenty five. Uh, so like all that shit happened way before twenty. You know, like so it's it's been a long time ago. So, I'm so not, this is in your genes. You got like you are obviously a bad driver. Your wife is an awful driver. I mean, the, the kid's doomed. I don't know. Maybe you. It's too late to teach her. Hmm. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe I just need to get her like wrap her in bubble wrap and be done with it. And, and just, uh, sorry, kid, you got a Segway everywhere. That's all you get. Uh, yeah, I'm holding out for the self-driving cars, man. There's oh, any shit. minute now. Any minute now. You thought you know, like driving a stick is learning how to drive a stick is a waste of time. Like learning how to drive is going to be a waste of time. But see, that's what I don't want her to get to because that's what a lot of kids are doing nowadays. Is they're not learning how to drive. Like they're foregoing even doing driver's ed and, and, and waiting till 18, 19, 20 to, to even learn or start learning. And I just don't want her to be that kind of kid. I want this kid to have a car and have a job by the time she's 13, you know, fucking be done. <laughs> start going to fucking work. All right. But you yeah. know, like the advantage to like the kid not getting the driver's license until after they're 18 is that when they wreck the car, they have to pay for it. Well, yeah, there, I mean, yeah, kind of, kind of. I mean, I'm. I had to pay my insurance from from the time I started driving until now. Like I've always had. That was part of the deal. Like if my mom said, if you're going to have a car, you're going to have this. Then you got to pay to upkeep the car. You got to pay for the insurance. You got to pay for all that stuff yourself. So all those fucking wrecks, I was paying three, four hundred bucks a month on insurance. You know, it was it was miserable, but I had to do it. You know, and I did it, and I worked, and I I I powered through it. You know, so. I thought that was part of that's part of the deal. That's what we were talking about. Because the other thing is, I don't want her to like not be, not learn how to take care of a car and all that stuff too. You know, I'm like, well, if you're going to learn how to drive, then you're going to have to learn how to change the oil and, and change the flat tire and all that stuff too. Because I don't think you know, self driving cars are going to be that. That's for dad. Dad will have a self driving car so that he can go downtown and start drinking again. So, you know, that's you and know. eat Whataburger while he's rolling. Fucking that's a. Right. Then I could then I could actually sit and relax and have my automated Uber car stop and get me some Whataburger on the way home. It'd be awesome. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, one thing I do know is that Monty Pittman does not have an automated car. He was driving from Vegas all the way back to Los Angeles. Uh, so that he could take his crown as the king of Los Angeles once he got back, uh, and and he got to the, we got a chance to talk to him on his long drive here on the Metal Sucks podcast. What's going on, Monty? How you doing? What's up, man? Sorry, yeah, that went straight to voicemail. Sorry, I don't know why, but... Oh, no worries, man. No worries at all, man. Sounds like you got you in the car, right? Yeah, I'm driving back from Vegas to L.A., so... All right. We're, Ooh, how'd you do at the tables? Uh, I didn't do anything at the tables. I filmed a killer video, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw the pictures on the old Facebook page there. Hmm. It's going to be uh, visually very intense. Now, what, by intense, what do you mean? A shock to the system. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, not like that. Uh, uh, it, it'll be a shock. A shock to the system visually. A lot, you know, a lot of uh, we filmed it at Beauty and Ethics. That's our friend Chris Santos's restaurant. So it's a, a, a gorgeous room. You know, just the the decorations and everything. It, it, it looks amazing. 
and uh, Leanna Decker is the uh, the star of our video, and uh, who is you know one of the most beautiful women on the planet. I don't want to give it all away, you know, but it's you're, it's going to be a, a cool video to watch. It's okay. going to be something you're going to want to watch over and over again. Just making sure it wasn't like, you know, a cattle decapitation, anything really weird, yeah. you know, like some strange gory thing that we were expecting. It is getting close to Halloween, so, you know, and we're doing metal, so. It is something that will fit in perfectly with Halloween. It's not really gory, but it's bloody. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Hey, hey Monty, I don't want to like get like you know really uh, like politically incorrect or anything like that. But did you get to like figure out who the chick in the video is gonna be, or was that like a hundred percent the director and they thought they'd surprise you when you get there? Um, that, she was my first suggestion. And is she like a friend? You, uh, you saw yeah, her in something? Yeah. Yeah, she's a friend. All right. Friend of a, a friend, friend or a friend? <laughs> Uh, it's a friend. I, I wanted her to do it on the last album. There's a song called "On My Mind," and that's who I wanted. If we were to do a video for that, I wanted to get her to do, to be in it. And but we didn't do a video for that. And so when this came around and we were in Vegas, she lives in Vegas. I was like, ah, oh, I'll reach out to her. And I figured she'd be like, ah, oh, no thanks. But she was like, oh hell yeah, so. Is cool. there anybody else in your life who, when you say to that person, I'm going to cast so-and-so into my video, they might get a little upset because they didn't get cast in your video? Um, well, I mean, it just, uh, there's some other friends, of course, in other cities. That it just, it's because we were in Vegas. If I was in you know, uh, Chicago, I could get somebody there. If I was in New York, I could get somebody there. If I was in Toronto, I could get somebody there. If I was in Dallas, I could get somebody there. So... It just so happened. That's the way that, uh, that's the hand that was dealt. I think what my co-host is insinuating is, is do you have a girlfriend that would be pissed <laughs> hanging out with a beautiful girl? <laughs> uh. Is, no. the, is there a significant, yeah, no. significant okay. other? Like, it, it, yeah, I think that, it, it doesn't like, have to be a girl, but you know, it yeah, could be yeah. anybody. Yeah, so the, so the video will come out. Uh, I think I got a bad connection. So uh, <laughs> the video will probably be out around when the album comes out, September twenty third. Uh, right on. Right well, on. we we can already see Monty that like like just in who you hang out with and everything else that you're a popular dude. And I just love the fact that you're like, I've got a woman in almost any city I can identify who's hot enough no, to put no, in no, my video. I don't mean it like that. I've got friends. Yeah, you know, I like last year on tour with Madonna. Like, I've got friends in every city. Yeah, but but none of them are ugly. Oh, let's be honest. Not a single one of them is ugly person. Uh, there's ugly ones and there's pretty people everywhere. You know. I know, but none of them are your friends. <laughs> They're all just my friends. Yeah. All right. You gotta understand, like Monty, if, if somebody said, "Hey, Godless, who's your ugliest friend?" I'm gonna go, "Whoa, well, hold on, there's, I gotta think about this for a minute because it's gonna, yeah, but there's, there's that one, there's that one. When they, if I were to ask you who's your ugliest friend, you're gonna gonna go, oh yeah, it's that one, but she's not really a friend. She just hangs out with that other person. That's how that works. I know all that works. <laughs> Well, there's beauty on the inside and there's beauty on the outside. All right. 
Diplomatic. I love it. I love it. That's great. Oh, I'm ready for you. Whatever you got, throw my I way. I love it. I love it. I love it. See? Uh, not, yeah, pro. Total pro. I love it, man. Pro, that's, baby, pro. That's great. That's great. No, no it, it's just a friend. We need. We wanted to hire somebody, and um, and you know she's awesome, and so that's that's what that's uh, so we want her. Oh, so I, it was her. I mean, she was, first, she was the first on the list. It was a collaborative thing. You know, we all kind of got together. Like, let's get. You know, we need somebody who's going to. You know, who's going to kill everybody? You know, it's got to be pretty. So. We just we uh, we figured that would be the, the case. Oh, I follow her on Instagram. I know it's awesome because uh, because uh, sometimes the most beautiful things in life could be the things that rip you apart. Ah, uh, the most deadly, indeed. And uh, and those that is kind of the uh, theme of the song. The song's called "Guilty Pleasure," mm-hmm. and um, and it's you know I, I wrote the lyrics. The way that I describe it, I say it is that you don't know if you're the. I use the words. You don't know if you're the antagonist or the victim. Now, this could be a relationship. This could be several things. This could be your, you, know, you can look at it like, you say it's your ego. Like you're destroying your ego. Uh, you're trying to make yourself better. So you're fighting with yourself. You know, if you're, uh, who knows, you're uh, trying to quit drinking or something. Or you're trying to uh, go to the gym more and get yourself in shape. And you're fighting yourself saying, no, let's stay in bed. It could be something like that, but I like to write the lyrics where it's up to you of what it's about. And so these things are only metaphors, because like I'll, I'll write a song. I, I was just listening to um, some, some you know, we're doing a lot of press now for the album, and, and what's crazy is that people are going back and saying, hey, I just listened to your first album, and I, I listened to your second album, and it's crazy seeing the, uh, the transition to where you are now. And so that made me go, oh, okay, I've been listening to those in a long time. And I went back, and it's, you know, what I, I know what I really wrote the song about. But when I listen to those songs now, they, they have a different meaning to me. So I try to keep it open like that. I don't write songs where it's like, okay, it's just about this subject. Not usually. That makes it really easy. Like, you don't have anybody going, hey, was that song about me? Because you can, you've got plausible deniability. That's pretty slick. I also try to write it to where you do think it's about you. And maybe it is, mm-hmm. but I'd never tell you. You, you cast an ugly-looking dude in one of your videos. I'll know it's about me, but until then. <laughs> <laughs> well, and too, it's it's actually now. I mean, nowadays, you that's kind of a, a more rare thing to see people that are writing something that is specifically about something, like telling a story about a specific incident. You don't get a lot of that anymore it seems to be a little bit you know like that's an old country song sort of thing right yeah and that, you know that's great you know storytelling that's something that i and also when i when i'm in this situation i think about what i'm going to write next and so it's like okay maybe i, I need to try to write a song that's a story or, or you try to you just take the things you don't have and you just fill in the fill in the gaps as you go along yeah, you think about those old rock songs, the old like uh, you know bad company songs that are telling the story about uh, about the rock and roll kid and growing up and uh, you know living life to the fullest and all that. It's and you can kind of interpret that, but it's really telling the story of this thing versus an idea yeah. that you're trying to get across. Yeah, yeah like a, a rock song that's about rocking. Yeah, <laughs> which are the best rock songs in the world, though, arguably, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. Have you ever sure. used Glenn Danzig as a metaphor <laughs> I, or? Or wrote wrote a song that was metaphorically about Glenn Danzig. I mean, you spent some time on the road with the guy, right? 
Yeah, I, I love that dude. He's awesome. Me and Glenn get along great. I you don't get along. You get along with everybody great. Like that's the, and if you get along with Glenn Danzig, then that, that I mean, geez, that's like proofs in the pudding. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess that should say something about me. It says a lot more about yeah, you than it does Glenn Danzig. That's for damn sure. <laughs> he, 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 well, you know, he, I look at it like because you know, like, I went out to a pong and we were in a van and we did the states. We got home like a. You know, like we get home one day, like, uh, let's say it's a Friday, right? And we played the Troubadour, and our, that was our last show, and then Glenn came out, you know, to see Tommy. And next day, you know, I, that was my first day home, and Pong's manager called, he goes, you didn't unpack yet, did you? I go, uh, no, I was just about to, why? They go, oh, well, well don't pack, uh, we're leaving tomorrow, Glenn's taking us out as an opening act. I was like, awesome, yeah, I'm, let's go. And so that was really cool, so, I, you know, I learned a lot. He was one of the first guys that I got to learn a lot about being on the road with, you know, being on tour with him and just seeing, like, I I look at it like he's so serious about what he does. You know, let's say the monitors aren't right. He gets pissed off. You know, the monitor sound's not right. I I understand that. That's his job. He can't go out there and be like, oh, man, hey, I I don't want to piss you off or anything, but, you know, I couldn't hear myself, and so... Maybe things are a little pitchy, and the song sucked. You know, the whole show sucked, and that's what the crowd thinks. So I understand that. Yeah, but doesn't but it get Glenn, to the point I, where I the reaction to to something like that ends up making the show worse than just trying to work through it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I know. I, I I understand it. You know, everybody is a little different. I did. I didn't. Um, you know, you just never know until you walk in that person's shoes. But I've never had any bad interactions with him. I guess I could just say it that way always been really cool to me he's awesome and you've experienced that on several different levels i mean with uh with all the stuff that you've done whether you were talking solo with prong with madonna i mean you've had like every level of experience in the industry with stuff like that how does that affect somebody like you when you're on stage and you're like that are you that guy that's yelling at the sound dude about the monitors or uh, are you kind of a laid-back easygoing guy no i'm more laid-back it's not really my personality to, to get you know, I just try to just fix things. If something's wrong or if I've done something wrong and then you have to tell me like, Hey Monty, look, uh, I don't I think you did the wrong thing here then I'll be like, Okay, yeah, okay, I think you're right. Now how do I how do I fix this? What's the best situ- what's the best way to, to uh fix this situation? And I have been a guitar teacher since I was fifteen. Uh, my first student was when I was fifteen. And so you have to be very, very, very patient with people. And and so I, I that's I don't know if one came from the other. I don't know if it was the patience and that helped with teaching guitar, or from teaching guitar helped me be patient. Well, and and not everybody can be a good teacher. Do you consider yourself a good teacher? Yes, I mean that is something where you know my students have they have proven themselves. So yeah, I mean they learned something. So that's good. I, I started <laughs> one, teaching. Yeah. I, I started, I started teaching online guitar lessons because people would always ask me for guitar lessons, but you'd have to live in LA for me to teach you. Yeah, and so and I know that it's I know it's gone on. I know people can do it, but I've never done it. So I sort of came up with my own method, my own plans, and I got a guy that's in China. He's in China, and I teach him, and every week. And he first started out, you know, he, he didn't know anything. And I showed, you know, showed him all his scales, all his chords. 
and I, my my lessons are very structured. It's not like I don't like when a student comes in and they go, "Hey, I want to learn this song," and they're like, "Okay, well, I got it." You know, I've never heard this song before. Okay, we'll figure it out. And you, it, it just it, it's unorganized, and nothing ever comes out of it. But this this guy just finished his twelfth lesson with me, and he just played "Welcome to the Jungle" all the way through. All right. Hey. So yeah, I mean, if, you know. As, just depends on how much you practice and what you put into it. I can, I can, I can show you what to do, and uh, and, and that's another good thing about what you say about the experience. Is I've made mistakes, I've learned from mistakes, I've experienced it, I've done it over and over again. I know it works, I know what doesn't work, and that does that does make it a little different. Other than like if you just are a really good guitar player or something, and you want to teach someone because there's a different part of your brain that works. I know for, I have friends that are like just amazing, ferocious guitar players. And I'll be like, what'd you do? And they're like, I don't know. I just did these notes. I don't know. They don't really know what they did. There's a different thing than going, okay, you have to hold the pick like this. You The pick goes on the string this many times, and you put your fingers here. And if any, anybody's listening, if you need guitar lessons, you can write me. Email me at <laughs> lessons at montypittman.com, by the way. You're going to think that this is a, a, a like a joke question. It's not. Would you give? No way. <laughs> would you no? But seriously, would you give charisma lessons? Charisma lessons? Yeah, be, no. That you like everybody. Everybody else seems to like you. I mean, I bet if I said out of the entire crew of any artist you've ever worked with or on your own crew, who hates you the most? You'd be like, I don't know. How do you do that? No, there's there's some there's some that hate me. It ain't, it ain't. No. Name one. No. Name one. There's no way. That's stupid. I wouldn't tell you who hates me <laughs> on an interview. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, you've got to give it to you. You've got an incredible positive energy, like kind of all around you. And there's not a lot of a lot of artists that, that seem to be able to maintain that, especially over the length of career that you have with the variety of things that you do. That's That's an impressive thing. Well, if you, if you called me an hour ago, or if you called me an hour from now, I may be exactly the opposite. Oh, <laughs> <No, laughs> come on. <laughs> an hour ago, you were sitting around with Leanna Decker, so, I mean, I think you're probably no, charismatic, no, too, no, so, no, you know. Oh, no, oh, no, no. No, but, but thank, thank you for saying that. That means a lot. I appreciate that. Do you feel that it's, uh, like, doing the lessons, like giving guitar lessons, is that, like, you don't have enough stuff that's going on in your life? Why Why do you choose to do that? Is that about giving back, or is that about something else? Uh, it, it keeps me on top of my own game, uh, like, where I'm always reviewing everything, you know, you, from your scales, chords, whatever, and I'm all, and everything is always fresh in my mind. Um, I do love to give back. I, I love that. Uh, one of my favorite things is when a student gets it. And, and that I, I get a lot of joy out of them understanding and me being able to pass something on. It's almost it's like it, it's almost, it makes me stronger with what I do, that I was able to pass that on to someone and then they get it, you know? Because I know that feeling of when I figured something out. So is that, and you know, you, you got to have a day job. You got to work. I, I tried going to Toys R Us after a tour one time, and I figured, like, you know, I'll get a discount on toys for people for Christmas and stuff like that. And I go in, I'm like, hey, you know, you guys hiring? And they look at me and they're like, uh, uh, no, we ain't hiring. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I, I got to keep busy, got to keep working, got to keep putting wood in the fire. Yeah, but you've so got like job. a ton of friends who would like cast you to do something. And you've got fires all over town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, too many irons in the fire. Yeah. So that's my life. Yeah, you, I live it and breathe it. You know, I, well, I've worked so hard to get to this point. It's like you can't stop. I always tell people, um, uh, my, you, you know Martin Anderson? He plays bass in Lizzie Gordon. Mm-hmm. So he's a buddy of mine, and we, we've jammed on, on some gigs, and he was telling me about something about a gig, and he goes, hey, he goes, somebody told me, he goes, rumor has it Monty Pittman can't turn down a gig. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, that's true. I said, I know you're joking. I said, I know you're joking with me, but I always, I always tell people that it's bad luck to turn down a gig. And, and like living, you know, been doing this. I've been working as a professional guitar player for 16 years, and it's crazy looking back. It seems like a, a, a blink of an eye. But other people who I've known who have said, "Hey, man, you know anybody who's looking for a guitar player? Knows anybody who's looking for a bass player? Anybody who's looking for a drummer? Let me know." I'm like, "Okay, well, hey, there's this uh, this person that I know that's a singer songwriter, and they're playing. Oh, I'm not doing that. That doesn't pay anything." I'm like, oh, well, you know that that doesn't just, you don't just start playing and people just start giving you sacks of money. You know, but you may meet somebody from that situation that that takes you to the next situation. I I had heard this, like, story, and I don't know whether it's true, this is years ago, that Will Lee used to play in the Saturday Night Live band, uh, I don't think he still does, bass player, had, like, lost a hand in a poker game or something like that, and he... The, the the deal was that he had to like double his rate or something like that. It was like he lost to another basis and they're like, You lose you you're gonna have to like double how much you charge by the hour to to gig or whatever. So he, he goes, Oh screw up my my whole career is gonna be shot. As soon as he doubled how much he was willing to do a gig for, he got more gigs. Huh. Who knows? I I've never heard that story before. Uh-huh. I heard a story about Willie Nelson and he had a drummer and the drummer said, "Hey man, I lost two hundred thousand dollars. You know, can you, uh, you know, you think you can loan me some money?" And, he, and it was something like, "He goes, no, I can't loan you any money. But I tell you what, let's write a song together. We'll put a song on my album. You'll make some money that way." And he goes, "Hey, look at it like this. How many drummers you know got two hundred thousand dollars?" <laughs> <laughs> As the king of Los Angeles, how much of your time is spent, you know, I'll call it networking, you're going to call it just hanging out with friends, rather than, you know, perhaps just practicing and, you know, actually working? The king of Los Angeles? What? Yeah, everybody knows you, everybody <laughs> likes you, you like everybody, come on. You know, it's all scheduled about, like, you know, Mondays I teach, Tuesdays I teach, and then I go to, uh, usually I do the Ultimate Jam Nights at the Whiskey if they invite me to come play on a song. Do that. Wednesdays I teach, Thursdays I teach, Fridays. I, um, and so I'm not, I'm not teaching every day, so there's not like a lot of, I don't really have any extra time. I never go out and hang out with friends. If I'm out with friends, it's because I'm playing or there's something going on. So if you ever see me out, I mean, it's because that there's there's pl- I'm playing or there's an event I have to go to. I, I don't I don't even remember the last time that I was able to just like go out and like party with friends. Well, you must get well, like invited to oh, like yeah. all the cool Grammy parties and stuff, right? Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. that was probably like two years ago. Then there was a Grammy party I went to. Jonas Ackerlund had a Grammy party. Now, you walk into that room. Do you go alone or do you go with somebody? Yeah, I went, I went with some people. With, with a group, not with, like, one person. 
couple people. Is, is all right. So the two people, uh, and neither was a significant <laughs> other, or or one was, and then that was the, you know his or her friend. It was uh, yeah, it was you know people. So were you the third wheel, or was somebody else the third wheel? Uh, I was the third wheel. You were the third wheel. All right. So, but is that the trick? Is that like when you walk into a cool people party, you always make sure that you arrive with other cool people to make sure that the other cool people know that you're cool when you walk in? You know, I just happened to go with, you know, some somebody I wanted to go with. I don't, I don't know if they enjoyed being there with me, but... <laughs> oh, of course they did. Sorry, I'm just kicking back and listening to my uh, my co-host try to try to figure out another way to ask you. Uh, what's, what's, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I got to get it. Yeah, you know, I got my shield up. Yeah, you're doing 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 well. I was like, and you're still you, and you're still on the road. That's what's that's what's even better. Like, what do you do? Don't give lessons on how to do an interview with me. That's all I'm asking because I don't want anybody else to do it like this. <laughs> Yeah. I'm loving it though. I, I'm, I'm I'm thinking it's great right now. So, Monty, when you're learning all, you're learning the back catalog of all these bands, right? Does it ever like kind of shock you how easy some of the great songs in music history actually are? Yeah, it is, and, and the hard part is how a lot of it um, is so much alike, and you don't really realize that. Yeah, I play in a friend's cover band. Uh, you know, we played last Friday. We play this, playing tomorrow night, and um, and there's just, you know, you've got a huge list of songs to play. And what's tricky is so many of these songs are so similar, and they uh, and they'll start to mess with your head. Like if you do "Hair of the Dog" from Nazareth, you very easily may start playing "Day Tripper" from the Beatles. You know, and it's so wow. similar. And uh, it, what I what really blows me away is Judas Priest. Some of the songs, how they're really just blues songs played, yeah. you know, at the time, you know, Spend as, up as, like, as, you say, like, as, as hard as you can or whatever, you know, not making it heavy metal. Yes. You know what I mean? Just a just a couple of BPM faster and a little little bit harder, maybe a little more distortion. Next thing you know, you got a you got a metal song instead yeah. of a blues song. But, yeah. But the uh, but, but the same chord progression. Yeah. And then also like Loverboy working for the weekend is an amazing song structure and chord progression. And I, I would never get that from just listening to it. Meaning that it's got like all sorts of like weird sevenths and suspended chords and all that crap? Like okay, like so the, for the verse, you know, talking about the notes, the, the chords go B and then he goes to G. And the second time he goes B and he goes to G sharp. And like it doesn't, it doesn't stay on the same notes. And it goes from minor to major, sort of. So, how do you, as a songwriter, keep around that? Like, how is it something that you try to avoid when you're when you're looking at writing songs? Since you have so, I mean, because you're probably well versed in so many as you know, playing cover bands and all that stuff. You've seen it all. How do you avoid it, or do you use some of that stuff in what you do? Oh yeah, definitely use some of that stuff because that stuff can be great for templates for just writing. Like if you. You know, you first come up with an idea for a song, and you've got like a couple of riffs, and you're like, how? Where are you going to put them? And so you can start out by going, okay, well, I like this song. What this does? Let's try those riffs in this arrangement. Uh, let's try those riffs in this arrangement. It's like, oh, I like this, but now I need another part that's going to go here, and then you just tie it all in together. I always use Madonna's "Open Your Heart." Or no, no, yeah, uh, Papa, don't preach. I always use that as my example as one of the greatest songs ever written. 
because what that song does structurally, like you have the beginning, uh, which is just strings, which is a completely different kind of music or genre or texture of music than what the song actually is. And then the song kicks in and it's the verse played instrumental before she starts singing. Like now, if it was Metallica, they would have like a series of riffs. And then when it gets to that verse, it's going to be a, a, a different riff will happen sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when that, just for that verse. And then how the melodies, how every, there's a verse, a pre-chorus, a chorus, and what I, I call it a post-chorus. So I don't know that a lot of people call it that. It just helps me remember it. But it, it's not just verse, pre-chorus, chorus, post-chorus. It's uh, every part has like an A and a B to it. How uh, the the melodies sort of question and answer each other. They balance each other out. And then the bridge. When you you know, then everything's going to sort of repeat. Then you get to the bridge, and the bridge is it kind of has the same thing. It kind of has an A, B, and a C to it, where it's almost another chorus. And then you get to the end of the song, and then she changes the chorus. It's like she's. It's like she's got the, the main chorus of what you know, but then she flips it, and it's like she's added another chorus on top of that that works. Are those the songs that stick? I mean, is that what makes them above and beyond, like the a regular... Well, I guess what's going to put that in the canon of the best songs in, that have ever been made sort of thing, when I think of like the Pink Floyds of the world that have created such completely different structures outside of the norm, is that what sets, a, sets them apart? Is that sort of thing? I don't, I don't know if there's a textbook answer for that. Like, here, this is what makes this the best. But as far as, far as a uh, dynamite structure, I mean, that that's... That's such a perfect song structure. Mm-hmm. Like for Pink, Pink Floyd stuff, it seems really simple. It sounds really simple, but some of that, when you learn it and you play it, it it can be more difficult. There's some. There's always some little thing in those songs that's actually a little tricky. Uh, like I, I, for the jam night at the whiskey, there's Pink Floyd night a couple of weeks ago, and I did Shine on You Crazy Diamond, and. <sighs> Awesome song. <laughs> when I, you know, if, if if it's not just a jam night, I can nail that song, and that's like one of my that and like Highway Star, Highway Star from Deep Purple, the Welcome to the Jungle. Those are like some of my songs. If I had to play you something and just nail it, those are some of my go-to sort of pieces. But when we got when you get up there and you just jam in a jam night, you're at the mercy of you just plug in and play. And like you got the clean channel and the amp, but that like there's no sustain to it. Like what you know of is "Shine on Your Crazy Diamond," and I just started like shredding all over it because I was like, "Oh my god, this ship is sinking!" And I felt like after doing that, I said, "I felt like at the end of Back to the Future when he goes nuts on his arm and everybody's just looking at him like, what the hell?'" <laughs> Your kids are gonna love it, you know? Because yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, because the song structure is complicated as it is, and I think everybody was kind of lost. You can't always hear yourself. And I just felt the heat of everybody looking at me like, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's such a subtle song. You know, I mean, that's... that. There was a sax player, too, and I realized at one of the parts, I'm like, oh, my God, I just completely bypassed her sax solo. And she just looked <laughs> at me. She stared through me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> eyes or lasers you would have burned me in half all right so so monty how do you fix that i know you got a you made sure that she didn't leave without like you know with yeah. you guys being cool so how do you fix it you just got to get through it that's all you can do 
But do you like send her a card the next day? Do you, you know, no. you buy her a massage? What do you do? I mean, I don't, I, nothing. There's nothing you can do. I'm uh, sure it's like fine. It, it's probably me. I'll probably just freak out on these things. <laughs> yeah, I notice a little of the stairs and all that stuff. Yeah, it feels a little yeah, bit. We keep yeah. on hearing about like baby metal and how like there are all these like uh, pop pros who are writing their songs and that this, the the songs are actually a hell of a lot more complicated than your typical metal song because they're using really odd, interesting J-pop elements to it. And I, I wonder if that's something that, you know, would apply to pop with, you know, say your your solo material as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean that definitely helps. Yeah. All of these things definitely help. They definitely contribute. Well, I think in a recent interview you said, you said basically that getting signed to Metal Blade was one of the luckiest moments in your entire life. Is that really true? Yeah. Is that really true? As far as luck is really concerned, true. why why do you yes, say why do you say true. that? Why do you say that's uh, the they, luckiest moment? They are the greatest team, and uh, just uh, I've heard so many horror stories from people getting signed to labels. And Metal Blade are so supportive of me, and uh, I mean, and, and and for me to have, you know, you know how people will say like, "Here's what I think you should do," and here's. Here's what you need to do. Like I've had people tell me that. Like first Madonna tour, I almost blew it because I had people saying, "Oh, you need to tell her you're gonna you you want this much money to play for her. You're not doing it." And I almost did that. And she would be like, "Uh, I don't think you understand." <laughs> and those people don't work in the business anymore. And they didn't work in the business too much longer. But having somebody that to be able to talk to about things. And I can say things like, "Hey, remember that time you discovered Metallica and Slayer? Now, how would how would we uh, how would we uh, think about this now? You know." And so I've got people who have really done it for real and aren't just talking. And we've heard it from a lot of different artists that are on Metal Blade. Also, that that it seems to be something where you're working with people who really love the music and and have a different perspective on it. Is that do you find that to yeah, be the case too? Yeah, and, and they become your family, you know. You you become friends with them. It becomes a little beyond that. Yeah, I mean, they, they really love it. It's not like they're just going to their job and looking at numbers. But see, I'm looking at it from the perspective of, here's this guy from uh, from East Texas, and I'm I'm in Texas, so I know what being in East Texas means. Um, I, knew, I knew there was something about you I liked. <laughs> do what? Yeah. So, uh, so I know what it means. Uh, but being, if that's the luckiest part, that's amazing to me because you've had so much. It seems like good luck, but I know that you've worked for it at the same time. Yeah, I, it, it, it's just getting started. It, I, I feel like this is just getting me prepared for the for the next thing. You know. I, so what's the end? Know, so what's the uh, what's the end game? I mean, what's your what's your ultimate goal? Just to keep working, to keep putting out music. Keep playing, keep getting better. I mean, really? I'm not. Yeah, this uh. isn't. This isn't like oh, I'm going to do this now and then retire. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm building the empire. <laughs> so you got to take over the world somehow, right? Yeah, he's yeah. already got Los Angeles con- uh, conquered. So you know, everything's easy after that. <laughs> well, thank you. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just going to keep keep getting getting better and better, trying to make myself better. 
become a better singer. I started taking vocal lessons from this guy, Ron Anderson, for this album. That's the guy that taught Chris Cornell and Axl Rose. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he really made me... I've had other vocal teachers who are amazing, but he really made me understand it, and I was doing so many things backwards. And you, kind of, you have to live with that information and digest that information. And just constantly making you know my uh, guitar playing better, my singing better, my songwriting better, overall performance, just everything. Just keep adding you know one brick at a time. Yeah, I mean, because you can't be like, hey, I want to play a big stadium with 50,000 people. Ah, just check, done. Okay, all right, we're going <laughs> to, the, these yeah. things are already checked off. You know, I want to, I, I would really like to be a coffee shop with an acoustic guitar. Ah, check, already done. Okay, I want to play oh, for just, a sports team. He wants to work no, at Toys check, R Us. Already done. So, I mean, is Toys R Us the next goal, you know? Well, in, 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 in a way, like, I've already done that. So I've already seen all of that, but yeah. I still, yeah, exactly. I love it so much, I, I still want to do it. And I know people who have been like, no, oh, I just want to get in the music business and write a couple of hits and retire and do that. Like, to me, that's, that's bullshit. Like, this is my life. This is what I've sacrificed everything for my whole life. You know, I've been, I got my first guitar when I was 13. And um, that's, this is all I've done. Play guitar. Play guitar for people. So, Monty, when you pull into your driveway in an hour or two, you unlock that door. Is there somebody there happy to see you when you get there? Uh, no. Happy to see me? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to let you off the hook. (laughs) Thanks, Monty. Dude, Inverted Grasp of Balance, the new record, dude. It's a really good record, man. I think it's some of your finest work. And uh, I can't, can't wait for everybody to hear the rest of the record, man. It's going to be a... I, th- I think it's really good stuff, man. Me too. Me too. Um, I, I, it's like, I, I don't know what anybody's going to think, kind of. It's, it's for the first time, I'm just... This is kind of like... I just I have no idea, so I don't know what to expect, and it's a, it's a weird feeling. Well, I think it's neat because I think you kind of go all over the place. I feel so many different looks from you, which is sort of interesting. On you know going through it, but it kind of plays to almost all of your strengths. I think at the same time, which is which is kind of crazy. Hey, I, I definitely wanted to make an album that would get your attention and not just be another album. Hopefully it gets everybody's attention. Toys are us will hire me. <laughs> Dude, it's been great talking to you, man. Thanks, Monty. Thanks, thanks you guys. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you again.
subscribe to the Metal Sucks Podcast today. if that sounds 30 years old or not to me i i still think it sounds fresh i really do it is it is interesting like you know people talk often about the influence of metallica on thrash but you know i i i don't think you could understate the influence of that album on thrash just because before that album people were trying to hit their grooves and stuff it was after that that the creators and and you know these other thrash bands just went for that break breakneck speed yeah is is all that what album's about yeah and they were able to and able to just kind of blaze a trail with with that record not not only for themselves but like you said for an entire genre of music you know where one was where metallica was starting to slow down and create compositions these guys were creating just explosive you know short bursts of of aggression that was a complete different thing and yeah it's a you know 30 years though 30 years that's unreal i mean i can't believe it man uh rain and blood october 7th 1986 is when that actually hit stores we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of one of the top two greatest metal albums of all time rain and blood (laughs) (laughs) and we're doing so with author dx ferris who's written not one but two books on slayer uh uh one in particular that focused almost exclusively on rain and blood uh it was uh 66 and two-thirds to jeff and davier so dx ferris thank you for joining us welcome hey thank you for not calling it uh, the anniversary. I hate that shit. Uh, you know, <laughs> albums celebrating their quote unquote 14th and 27th and uh, 13th anniversary. Anniversary to what? Uh, so thank you. You have uh, you've reaffirmed and earned your right to be on a microphone saying things. Good job. <laughs> nice, nice. Finally, he's done something to to, to warrant that. So, mm-hmm. DX, we were talking earlier before we started recording that there are some there are some 
uh, uh, some things that, that people believe are true about Rain and Blood that are just not true. Yeah, what I did was, uh, you know, in writing the, uh, what the book is, is, uh, I don't know if you know these, there is a series of books called 33 and a Third. Mm-hmm. Each one of them is by a different author uh, about a different classic album. And it's everything from the Beach Boys to the Beastie Boys. And uh, each one of those uh, takes a different appearance, uh, different attack, different approach to examining like the backstory or the significance or taking a unique look at a classic album. There's a little bit of everything. And mine on Rain and Blood was the first full-on metal album in there. The Black Sabbath one came out just a hair before mine. Uh, In the last year, there's a very good one about Metallica's Black Album, but mine is... Uh, all about rain and blood. Uh, they asked me for a little bit on it. I gave them a lot more, and uh, I think it's pretty good. You know, it's been a while since I wrote it, and when I go back and I look at it, I'm like, oh, this is this is interesting. I got some good stuff. I'd forgotten about that. You sure did. But when I when I was putting this together, what I did was I reached out to fans and I asked what kind of questions they had. You know, as a lifelong fan, this was at a time that we didn't know as much about Slayer as we do now. So I said, what do you guys want to know? And what I looked at was, you know, 20, 25 years at the time of uh, Slayer mythology, misconceptions, that kind of thing. And what I'm doing this week is I'm addressing that for our friends at Metal Sucks. I have a list of 10 myths and misconceptions about the album and look at 10 of the most prevalent big ones. And, uh, yeah, it's some interesting stuff, I think. Now, we're so- a lot of these things you can reasonably assume about the album and Slayer, but you would be wrong. So I mean, were these actually some of the ones that you had crowdsourced out of that out of that experiment there? Yeah, some of them. I forget where they all came from, uh, but they're definitely like uh, I think most of them are, are definitely things that I went in um, with the idea. Um, you know, people had asked me, or I had just assumed over the years, or you know, I'd heard people say like, "Oh, you know what that's about?" Yeah, right. No, right. That's not what it's about. Because usually you get that it's like, "Oh, well, why is Kerry King such a dick?" That's uh, that's <laughs> usually what people would, uh, a lot of fans would uh, say. Uh, I heard that Kerry King had that armband sewn to his arm. Man. <laughs> he had to shave his head because he's technically like bald from ear to ear, you know. So, yeah. and if you heard that, you're not dumb for thinking that it's the other guy's fault they they lied to you they heard it it's the telephone game you know yeah. once it filters down it's, it, and you, back in the days before the internet who knew you didn't know yeah i didn't know exactly i can't look it up on wikipedia and find out what's real or not oh wait that's not really real either oh well <laughs> so yeah we're here for you we have the uh, the straight skinny on slayer <laughs> and you're doing an article for metal sucks on this topic yeah, it's going to be uh, you know, 10 of the biggest myths and misconceptions about Slayer revealed. Hmm, so we need to pick your brain or about some of these. Speak, yeah. Anniversary unleashed. <laughs> anniversary unleashed. And other inappropriate metaphors. Just wait till you read number six. You won't, you won't believe it. Number seven, <laughs> destroy Slayer. <laughs> you won't believe number eight. Let's go ahead and I, we got to get a couple of them on here. I mean, at least some of the misconceptions that, that, that are on here. So. What what's probably one of the biggest ones to you? I think the biggest one is the role of Rick Rubin in making the Slayer sound leaner and meaner on this album. I mean, Rick Rubin, who produced this album, 
of course, a uh, superstar producer. You know, at the time, he was basically some long-haired rap dude from New York, as far as the world at large knew him. And he would go on to work with Johnny Cash, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Dixie Chicks, Tom Petty. I did the math once. Roughly 10% of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees have worked with Rick Rubin. 10%. I Phil Spector is not even close to that. So, uh, you know, we still haven't realized the full might of him. Uh, and Ruben is a, you know, he's not an engineer. He's not a real hands-on guy, but he's a real, uh, he's a true fan. You know, he knows the difference between a good song and a bad song. He knows all about, you know, shaping songs and making them good. So when you look at the difference between the previous Slayer album, Hell Awaits, which was seven songs in about 45 47 minutes and when you look at i'm sorry when you look at rain and blood which is 10 songs in just a hair over 29 minutes you would reasonably assume that the difference and the credit for that would go to rick rubin you know a guy that is synonymous with uh immaculate song structure but you would be wrong um you know the fact of the matter is that slayer had written not the entire album as such, but Slayer had written all the music for the album and could play it as a piece before he arrived. So when he first met them, they were playing that album at a speed where it came out to uh, 33 minutes at the time. But still, it was essentially the length and shape that it was. So they had stopped writing seven-minute songs about vampires and necrophilia, but that was not Ruben's doing. You know, all credit to to what he did do, but, you know, he did not make them or tell them or suggest that the song should be shorter they did that all their own there were comments after slayer announced that ruben was not working with them on repentless that they just felt like he was just sort of showing up and you know nodding his head and then turning around and leaving and they were handing him a ton of dough to do that heads is that true about his relationship with the band and how involved was he uh, with the songwriting and with uh, the engineering, if he didn't re- help write the songs, uh, well, what did he what, do? And yeah, what did he do? Yeah. Well, I, I chart that over the course of the Rain and Blood book. I mean, he was in later years. The band have been very ambivalent about his presence because just having his name attached to yours, uh, you know, I will take that. You know, having yeah. you know, saying that Rick Rubin gets some credit for your thing is only going to make it look good. Um. In my second book, The Jeff and Dave Years, I kind of chart the uh, the changing role that he played over the years. But for this first album, when he worked on with the one that he did work on with them for the first time, he was very focused, very present. Uh, in a way, it was the role that he would play later. It was almost an executive producer. Like if something sounded bad, he would tell them it sounded bad. And maybe they would argue that point back and forth. But, you know, he would do that. Um, just little things like, you know, Ruben loves lead guitar. You know, if it were him, it would have been all half an hour of just shrieking leads instead of the, uh, well, they have plenty of them, but he wanted more and more and more. But he, he just, uh, you know, at that point, he was somebody that the musical industry took seriously and he was there to tell them that their instincts were good. Like, yeah, that sounds good. You know, when everybody heard they were signing to uh, Def Jam, that made us panic, man. Nobody wanted to hear <laughs> one of the most promising metal bands on some rap label. And then every band that gets signed to a major, of course, sells out and makes a shitty album and starts wearing blue eyeliner, you know? 
So uh, how so did that how did that connection yeah. happen? Um man, long story short, they played New York City. Rick Rubin was there. Rubin liked extreme stuff, you know, doesn't matter what it was. He liked rap, he liked pro wrestling, he liked metal, he liked punk. If it was good, if it was bloody, he liked it. And Slayer appealed to him. So we saw him in New York, tracked him down in um tracked him down in California. They were signed to uh, Metal Blade at the time. Pretty much ironclad contract, but Rick Rubin worked a little bit of his Rick Rubin magic. And uh, long story short, they were on the world's most famous visible rap label, which oddly enough worked out. <laughs> well, and, you know, somehow got him on a Beastie Boys song, too, at the same time. <laughs> yeah. They call that synergy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, Branding, cross-marketing. You know, you know and, and it, it kind of worked in a weird way. Or did it? Some- I mean, because that was one of the other things that was kind of a misconception uh, about this record as far as it being um, uh, not it didn't sell as much as we thought it would. Or what was, a, what were ta- what was another one of those that we were talking about? Well, yeah. You know what? The world may never know. You know, people, assume, I mean, obviously, hands down, immediately stone cold genre redefining metal classic, Rain and Blood. No question. Mm-hmm. But how well did it sell exactly? We don't really have the numbers to back that up. You know, at the time it barely cracked the Billboard Top 100. I think the highest it made it was 94, give or take five percent here or there. But it was definitely closer to 90 than uh, than 80. Um, Metallica's Master of Puppets, you know, classic album released the same year has sold maybe, well, it's been certified. I mean, the whole idea of, uh, an album being certified platinum indicates that it has shipped a certain amount of copies, not sold that many necessarily, but Metallica's Master of Puppets is six times platinum. Megadeth's Peace Cells is platinum. Slayer's Rain and Blood, not platinum, not platinum. It was wow. certified gold. Uh, in the early 90s but never platinum now does that mean that it didn't sell a million i seriously doubt that i would bet a finger or certainly six dollars and 66 cents <laughs> and has sold over a million copies but uh you know slayer over the years has changed distributors and labels a lot um not labels but distributors a lot so they haven't really kept track of how many copies it has shipped and sold, et cetera, et cetera. But more to the point, Slayer's not the kind of band. I forget. Can we swear on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fucking yeah. Slayer's not the kind of band that gives a shit about you know, yeah. platinum certification. So they didn't ever take $2 or whatever it costs out of their pocket to just get their ticket punched. And I respect that. So I would bet that it's platinum. I would bet that it's multi-platinum at this point. But- we don't really know. I would totally expect that it sold more than Peace Sells. Yeah. Uh, you would think. All respect to Peace Sells. Yeah. Well, I mean, you say that, but at the same time, Megadeth was a much bigger MTV band than Slayer was around that time, too. So, I mean, yeah, you get to there, there is the TV play. And I mean, I think there's yeah, that's a good point. There, there's some of that, some of that at work and the stuff that made it to MTV, whether it was Headbangers Ball or Mainstream, it, it seems to have sold a hell of a lot more. And yeah, at, I mean, you know, potentially the only thing that really got the Slayer on MTV was the Beastie Boys at first, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, they just, they didn't, you know, I talk about it in the uh, the book about Rain and Blood. They had ideas for a video, but they didn't actually cut a proper one at yeah. that point. Yeah, there are, I mean, I, I'm i proud of the research I did. I really busted my, my butt and I got things that I can't believe nobody else ever dug up. I got some things I couldn't believe that I was able to find. You know, I, I did some really deep diving and unearthed a lot of Slayer stuff. But that said, there are some things that we are just never going to know about Slayer until they decide to tell their version of the story. So, you know, I, I know my books will stay in print. I got some good stuff. I got some stuff out there that I know they're never going to go out of their way to call attention to. But uh, some things, you know, like how many did this sell and why did that happen until they say here's why, assuming they're telling the truth when they do. We will never know. So I'm, I'm hoping, one of my great hopes as a Slayer fan is that we get an official book one day. So have they ever commented on how they felt about Rain and Blood when they were first done with it, or even how they feel about it creatively now if they have any perspective on it? Yeah, you know, Kerry King is, is famous in saying that if it came out today, nobody would notice, nobody would care. But I mean, it's kind of tricky to say because it redefined the genre and it helped birth the world that we're in today. So, I mean, that's like saying, well, if you didn't already make this world, would people notice this world creation thing? I don't know. Uh, it's hard to tell. Um, at the time, yeah, Slayer's a tough band to talk to, man. They're one of those groups. <laughs> I'm sure you can relate to yeah. this. Oh, they, yeah. just, they have no perspective on themselves. They're not introspective. Uh, they don't have this elaborate self-mythology self in their head, which on one hand is really refreshing. You know, like you've no doubt you guys have talked to people that have not even one-tenth the accomplishments, but in their head they're the uh, hero of this grand story. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, totally. Well, and, and sometimes, I mean, that's a that's a helpful thing, I guess, to get you through or at least make you feel better about it anyway. Yeah, but Slayer just, I mean, they have no perspective. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more that I've worked with them, the more I've talked to them or tried to talk to them or read their stuff, I feel like it's it's like talking to a baseball player, like talking to, you know, an immortal great like Reggie Jackson. Like, well, why did you hit that home run that way, Reggie? What, what were you thinking? Yeah. He, he yeah. wasn't thinking about it. And that's how Slayer, I think, just approached their art. You know, they're almost like these four athletes. Like, you can pick their brain and try to get at what they were coming from but they're just guys doing their thing and it's instinctive and they don't process it on you know that kind of level that's a good analogy actually i mean it's a it's a like when you talk to that amazing guitar player and you're trying to figure out who he is and what he's uh, what he's all about and all he wants to do is talk to you about guitars you know? yeah <laughs> it's like this is what i know this is what i do that's what what it what is and it's it's gear oh, okay you know or what it you know <laughs> Uh, or you got the singer that just wants to talk about Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it, it just depends. So, Man, well, what else? What else do you guys want to know? Hmm, let's see. Well, uh, yeah, I guess I, I mean, the sales of Rick Rubin and then Hanneman is the driving force in that. I mean, you know, he's been eulogized now that he's passed, but how much of that album really was Hanneman? Sure, his name's on the credits for songwriting and stuff, but I mean, what was the band dynamic for that album? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, yeah, Hanneman, I think, 
was the band's soul. You know, all respect to the other guys and what they contribute. I mean, Hanneman was like the pure artist. Like as the years went on, he did interviews less because all he cared about was the art. He didn't want to be out there. He didn't want to do the politicking. didn't want to do the interviews. It was just what came out of him was some of their best stuff. Uh, this album was very much a partnership between him and King. Uh, you know, Tom Araya, interestingly enough, didn't write any of the lyrics on this. Now, mm. Tom, of course, years later, has a couple Grammys for uh, for songwriting with Slayer. But at the time, it was, you know, 100% of the credits are Hanneman and King. Uh, Hanneman wrote two songs by himself. King wrote one song by himself. Um, the credits are kind of mixed on on two of the songs, and two of them just say, like, King and Hanneman, like, words and lyrics. So it very much started with Jeff's ideas like Angel of Death, and he had an original idea. I talk about this in the book. He had an original idea for Raining Blood that was very different, very different. And I told him it was a good idea, and I asked him to use it. I was like, you should still do that, man. That's amazing. But sadly, he did not. Uh, But it all came out of Hanneman's idea. He was the one who was kind of out front of it. He had the best ideas. He had the uh, the most ideas. And Kerry King very much partnered with him. And I, I think over the years, when you look at those two guys, they did their best work when they were working together. You know, those guys were very much like the, uh, the toxic twins, whatever you want to call it. Uh, not in the sense of partying, but they were just one of those great uh, creative forces for the ages. They made each other better. They brought each other out. They were working on the same page. Uh, you know, very much like brothers. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. DX, that, that, the Jeff and Dave years is an amazing, amazing book. It's crucial for every, every Slayer fan to read. Uh, it's, it's, it's just still so filled with great anecdotes and, and great stories about, uh, you know, the, one of the absolute greatest albums of all time. Um, so I thank you very much for being with us and thanks for, uh, putting the work into that book. It's, it's, it's a, it's an awesome read. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, a lot of stuff that wouldn't fit into the first book, the one just about rain and blood. And, you know, I mean, that's that's a fairly prestigious series of books. We have a lot of high minded stuff in there. I still can't believe they let me do it. Like, I feel like I got away with something, <laughs> you know, like like you snuck into the uh, the office and played Slayer over the PA system during lunch. You know, that's what I feel like. <laughs> so is there so any thanks. hope? Is there any hope to uh, a Slayer getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I think everything happens eventually. You know, like uh, once Kiss goes in, that opens the door for Deep Purple. And is is Cheap Trick in yet? Uh, I think so. I think think so. They're in the one song wing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like like maybe. I, I think Rick Rubin, as I said, like that guy having worked with so many people, like he will be in one day. And I think like the Rick Rubin connection is ultimately going to pay off for Slayer when, uh, I mean, Megadeth, all respect, is not going to. Anthrax is not going to. You know, if any other thrash band goes in, it will be Slayer. Yeah. And they have the pedigree. I mean, you know, again, look at the people that made Rain and Blood. You know, that's what I mentioned in the first breath when I was pitching the book. Like, yeah, no, seriously. I said, like, literally, no, seriously, please think about this. Because I know it's Slayer and I know it's called Rain and Blood, but Rick Rubin, Andy Wallace, who, uh, you know, who mixed Nirvana's Nevermind, produced Jeff Buckley's Grace, uh, coming out on Def Jam. It has an immaculate pedigree. So, you know, if any other big metal band gets in, I think it'll be a while. I think it'll be 
uh, later than sooner, but I think they have a shot. I hope so. I, I mean, so. They, they're more deserving than Deep Purple, that's for damn sure. I don't know. Dun, I recuse myself. I mean, come on. Come on. <laughs> Even Beavis and Butthead. up. The radio. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What? That's not them. That's not them. You know, from that time, from that time, <laughs> the records show that wrong. I think Deep Purple is Perfect Strangers oh, is sorry, the I least think, embarrassing think, reunion album ever, for what I that is I'm, worth. Oh, no, the 10CC reunion album was was awesome. That's the least <laughs> embarrassing reunion album of all time. I heard Jane's Addiction got back together a few years back. I wouldn't know. <laughs> well hey guys uh, thank you for having me thank you uh, slayer bio if you want to check out my bullshit slayer and bio bio.com that'll get you right awesome. to it and what Always are you on uh, on twitter on twitter uh dx ferris is the uh the quickest expressway to my uh, my nonsense dx ferris awesome. or if you just want the slayer stuff slayer book yeah because you got the the suburban metal dip it, uh suburban metal dad comic book as well so it's yeah it's just you're spitting out some great stuff for metalheads every day thank you thank you yeah if you just want the metal uh twitter slash slayer book thanks for reading guys <laughs> So make sure you check out DX online and all that stuff, man. He is uh, a brilliant writer and got a lot of cool things going on for you, metalheads. So I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff, uh, meat and potatoes for you to check out with uh, with old DX Ferris. Yeah, and can I just add that uh, uh, Joel McIver, who we talked to last week, also has a uh, um, a, a Slayer book that's uh, worth checking out. And I I was on the Talking Bullocks podcast, which I'm not sure if that's gone live yet or not. I don't think it has, but keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, the four of us, uh, Joel and DX, myself and uh, Howard over at uh, Talking Bullocks, just spent, we spent an hour just talking about Raining Blood. They, those guys have got some great stories. Yeah. Why did they invite you? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a minute. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> something, something's weird there. Something's not fitting. Yeah, my, my qualification is I read the other asshole's books. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to the record a lot. It was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. It's the, I thought that's good. <laughs> okay, cool. Oh, good times, man. So thanks to DX. Thanks to Monty Pittman. Uh, we appreciate you guys coming on the podcast. Make sure you are subscribed to us all over the place. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can get the Metal Sucks podcast delivered right to your device. Or, of course, MetalSucks.net every single Monday. Click on the podcast app. Find all of our old episodes. They're listed right there. And tell a friend about it. God damn it. Why? Because your friends can hate us just as much as you do. That'd be great. <laughs> ah, yeah, we'd love to have that. And you can find us on social media. I am at Bearded Ape. I am at Godless Speaks. Godless Speaks on Facebook and Spotify. And you can find us on uh, Instagram at Chuck and Godless. You can find us on Patreon.com. That would be Patreon.com slash Chuck and Godless or Chuck and Godless.com. We'll take Please. you right there as well. We would appreciate your support. We actually recorded an extra segment for this episode that we didn't think was good enough, so we're going to give that to your Patreon people. Well, actually, we, oh, yeah. we, we thought we didn't. Not that it wasn't good enough. We thought that it was something that wouldn't apply to everybody, but we think you Patreon yeah. people will like it. So we're gonna we're gonna you know put a few ex- little extras out, which we already have. So make sure you're uh, checking it out at Patreon.com/slash. Chuck and Godless. So yeah, I was just going to say one last thing is that uh, you know people want to stream their metal. They you know you just get tired of uh, 
uh, you know, figuring out what you want to listen to on Spotify, that sort of thing. Uh, NoControlRadio.com. I never sell my own shit, man. No. Uh, yeah, NoControlRadio.com. Or at NoControlRadio on Twitter is my uh, Twitter handle for my metal show. Uh, my yeah, and you can actually find it on on uh, SoundCloud as well. So uh, cool. if you search No Control Radio, right as well. So. All right, fine. Sell it a little bit for me there, buddy. Until <laughs> right. next week, I'm Chuck. And I'm Godless. This is another Metal Sucks podcast. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.